The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke. Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? Eight hundred gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it four hundred. Then he asked the second, And how much do you owe? thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it eight hundred. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Gospel of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Well, in my devotions for the last uh, few months now, I have been reading some of John Donne's sermons. Some of you know of John Donne, the great 17th century English author, or maybe you were at least forced to read him back in high school. I always loved his holy sonnets, and then when I found out that there were all these sermons he had written and and preached that I uh, figured I needed to check those out. Uh, unfortunately, the the volume that I got was most was one of the, the kind of thing that gets assigned for class, where it's got all kinds of uh, samples of his sermons. But just when it starts getting interesting theologically, then it moves on to another selection because the person who put this together was interested in Dunn as a literary figure more than as a theological figure. So I'll have to find the other one uh, and and use that. But some of these are really terrific, and and one I ran across last week. Uh, resonated very, very, very much for me as I was thinking about this sermon. He was preaching at Lincoln's Inn, which was a, a gathering of, of lawyers. And he says to them, You are not all here neither. You are here now hearing me, and yet you are thinking that you have heard a better sermon somewhere else of this text before. That's likely this morning. This text that we have this morning is one of the most difficult, of the many difficult things that Jesus 
said, this parable of the dishonest steward or the unrighteous manager is one of the uh, parables that you read it and the commentaries will put it in a, of course, very uh, snooty and academic sounding language, but basically they're like, I don't know, I don't know what it means. And I confess that I have not been the one person in the last 2,000 years to definitively figure out just what this parable is all about. But as I was reading it and rereading it and rereading it and reading what other folks had written about it, at the very least it came to me that there are three things that this is not about. And so if I can't say what it is, hopefully I can get partial credit for being able to say a few things that I'm pretty sure this is not saying. They're pretty sure a few things that Jesus is not saying. So the first thing that I think Jesus is not saying here, he's not saying that dishonest stewardship is good. He is not commending the dishonest manager. The manager's boss commended the dishonest manager. It seems that they were both cut from the same crooked cloth, and his boss was like, ah, it's pretty clever. And in that kind of culture, in fact, the boss would not have been able to go back to everybody the manager had, had uh, adjusted accounts with. He would have lost face if he had gone around and, uh, and said, no, what, what my guy did was, was wrong. You still owe me all this. Because then he would have been declaring that he was, in fact, an incompetent owner and that he hired incompetent people. So he was kind of stuck. And so there's a sense that he was ruefully admiring what his manager had done. Now, some people look at this and they say, well, the reason that, that the dishonest manager would be commended is, is that there was a, a redistribution of ill-gotten gains. Maybe some people would say, well, the, the manager was, was simply making sure that, that uh, the tenant farmers on this guy's land who, who would have provided a, a portion of their proceeds in order to, uh, to have the right to farm the land uh, maybe maybe he was taking advantage of them, and so the dishonest manager was simply adjusting that number to to where it should have been. Or or maybe the dishonest manager was uh, was correcting usury. Maybe the the his boss was lending money out at interest, which was prohibited for people to do uh, to fellow Israelites. And so maybe he was just knocking off the the interest on the loan, which shouldn't have been charged anyway. The the problem with this idea is is that the numbers in this parable are just so huge. We're not talking about the tenant farmer who's growing a, a, a small patch of, of, of grain. Uh, th- these people owe hundreds and hundreds of, of bushels, a thousand bushels. And so to say you only need to produce 800 rather than a thousand bushels is still well beyond the capacity of any one poor farmer. No, this is, this is somebody who is probably in the wholesaling uh, and and uh, distribution business, and so he's dealing with with fellow business people, with other people who are are buying and selling for profit. So there's there's no redistribution of of ill-gotten gains. And most importantly, you'll notice that in the text, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Jesus doesn't commend the dishonest manager. He simply says that his boss commended him. And if you look at, at the end of the, the, the passage, the, the punchline, when 
Jesus says you cannot serve both God and money, these characters, both the owner and the manager, seem to be people who are quite tied up in material resources and making sure that they have them for the sake of their own comfort and their ability to prosper. And so I think Jesus would say these are the kinds of guys who clearly have wealth as their God, not God. So I don't think that Jesus is saying you should do like this. And a lot of the parables are like that. A lot of, the, a lot of times, because we're used when we grew up, you know, you read these, fairy t- uh, the, the, these tales and, and, and there's always the moral of the story, right? At the end, you know, the moral of the story of the, the, the uh, uh, tortoise and the hare is slow and steady wins the race. There are, the stories always have a, a, a moral and there's always a character in there that you're supposed to identify with. Well, Jesus' parables don't always work like that. In fact, usually they don't. So usually he's talking about what God's like, not about what we're supposed to be like. He, when he tells the story of the sower, for example, the parable of, of the sower, and I've said this before here, it starts out, this is the very first parable Jesus tells. He says, a sower went out to sow, and, and he sowed a quarter uh, of his seed on the rocky soil, and he sowed a quarter of his seed on the path, and he sowed a quarter of his seed on, on, uh, among the thorns. And Jesus doesn't tell that story so that when you go out to sow your seed, you waste three-quarters of it. No, he's making a point about how God gives the word, the, the good news about Jesus is proclaimed, and some respond to it, and some don't. So likewise here, I don't think it's incumbent upon us every time we read one of these parables that we figure out, okay, what's the moral to the story? I don't think that's what Jesus is doing with this. Another thing I think Jesus is clearly not saying here is that you can buy your way into heaven or you can somehow earn your way into, as Jesus puts here, the eternal dwellings or the eternal tents by using the worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves. Now, there's a, a rich tradition in uh, Christian thought along these lines that, that says that, uh, that it is, in fact, incumbent upon you to give to the poor what the poor need, and if you do that, then you will have earned the favor that is appropriate. If you fail to do that, then you will not. So, the Reverend James Forbes says, nobody gets into heaven without a letter of reference from the poor. And the 5th century Pope Leo the Great said that food for someone in need is the cost of purchasing the kingdom of heaven, and the one who is generous with temporal things is made heir of the eternal. Some scholars speculate that, well, really what the dishonest manager was doing was he was simply waiving his commission on all of these transactions. And so he was trying to, to put himself in a, in a place where, where he was doing the right thing for once, so to speak. But I don't think there's anything in the text that indicates that that's the case. Certainly the commissions involved would have been well beyond what somebody in his position would have been expected to have. But it really is tempting, isn't it, to read this verse the, when, when, uh, when Jesus says, the, I, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Another way to translate worldly wealth is unrighteous wealth. And so, 
some people would say, well, Jesus is saying what you need to do is take all those ill-gotten gains of yours and you give it away to the people in need. And if you do that, then you will have secured for your place, uh, secured for yourself a place in the eternal tent in heaven. This does not work quite simply because it is by grace that we are saved, not by works, lest anyone should boast. It's nothing we have done that merits God's favor. As Paul put it in his letter to Timothy that we read today, that there is one mediator between God and man, and it's not you. There's only one person who enables us to be in the presence of the most holy God, and it is Jesus and His sacrifice on our behalf that makes it possible. There's no amount of good that we can do, no amount of charity that we can donate that is going to somehow make God say that we have done enough and we are okay. This idea that, uh, well, I'll be accepted into God's arms because I'm a good person, this is pagan. This is not Christian. This is the same impulse that has people sacrificing birds in order to appease the gods. No, that's not how it works. But, and here's the third thing I want to say, I'm pretty sure this is not about. This is also not saying that you shouldn't give alms, right? So, Jesus is, I think, first, He's not saying that dishonored stewardship is a good, uh, good thing, that everybody who's in charge of somebody else's accounts should go try to rip him off in order to earn favor with, uh, with his uh, clients before he gets canned. I don't think Jesus is saying that you can buy your way to heaven by giving alms, by giving to charity, but I think He also would not be saying that you shouldn't. There is, of course, all kinds of stuff in Torah, all kinds of stuff that Jesus Himself says about looking out for those who are in need, about providing for people who do not have the basics that they need to survive. And the the church fathers, I think, did have a, a correct insight when they said that if you are holding on to something that your neighbor needs, literally needs to survive, you are holding on to something that is his by rights. He has the right to expect that you will provide. This person in your community who is in need has the right to expect that you who have abundantly more than you need will provide for him. In fact, the fathers go so far as to say that it is theft, that you are violating the commandment against stealing if you take that which somebody else needs and hold hold on to it for yourself. So there is a rich heritage in both Jewish and Christian tradition of recognizing the importance of caring for those in need, the importance of giving alms, of sometimes as a specific discipline, whether it be because you're dealing with a particular issue or because it's a particular time of year of being in the habit of doing that. So we shouldn't take from all of this that we shouldn't be giving alms I think if there's nothing else that we can confidently take, having seen a few things that we can't, it could be that punchline at the end, that no servant can serve two masters. 
Because he's either going to hate the one and love the other, or he's going to be devoted to the one and hate the other. You can't serve both God and money. That word for money is mammon, which is uh, an Aramaic term probably referring to a god of wealth. You can't serve both God and money. And that doesn't mean that there's no place at all in our lives for having money, for using it well, for being wise stewards of what we have. Again, Torah has all kinds of stuff about how people are to manage and to, to use the resources that God has blessed them with. Jesus encounters all kinds of people in, in the stories about Him. There are a whole bunch of them He meets who are rich. There's only the one that He said, you need to give away everything that you have to the poor and follow Me. But we steward the resources that God has given us, not because we serve those resources. We steward them because we serve God. And we affirm that everything we have has come from Him, that everything we have is fundamentally His and is to be used for His purposes. We can't serve as our God both the one true Lord and money. But when we serve the one true Lord, after all, we are serving the Lord who is able to make it possible for us to be welcomed into the heavenly courts. We're serving the one who died on our behalf in order to reconcile us to Him. We're serving the God who is true, the God who is eternal the God who will always provide for us those things that we do need. Amen.